Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today with the Learn With Lowell podcast, coming back after a year of hiatus. Today, we're joined with Nick and Chris from Biosera, one of the first people I've ever interviewed. It's kind of a, an update. Since we've spoken, they've been funded. They've been through Y Combinator. They're doing a ton of work in resistance, resistance type therapies. They're moving into uh, cancer approaches. It's really, really fascinating. We get into all of it today. Um, so, you know, check them out. They're going to be in the link. They have a lot of really great stuff coming up. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see how they've gone from, you know, two years ago to now and how their team's doubling and, you know, doing all this great work to basically improve all of our lives and save lives. So without further ado, you know, welcome back to Learn With Lowell Show. First question I have for you guys, and, and thanks for being back on here. Um, for for longtime listeners, uh, Chris and Nick should sound familiar. Um, the what what is your like kind of starting broad? Uh, what's what is your vision for the future right now, and um, how are you working towards to seeing that come into being? Then we can kind of break it down from there. Yeah. So one of the things that we find pretty pretty consistently is that as we develop new therapeutics we end up uh, running into resistance, treatment resistance. And I think the thing that we need to, as a pharmaceutical company, as a biotech uh, space need to address is, is resistance, treatment resistance. What happens when the first drug doesn't work and what happens when the first drug stops working over time? Um, and I think what we've, we've stuck to is, let's just make a new drug, let's find a new target, Let's create a new treatment modality. Um, but I, I think that there needs to be more emphasis put on understanding how treatments stop working over time so that we can use that, um, that information to more effectively treat patients uh, in the future. Okay. So, so for people who aren't familiar with, with cancer, um, and would, how, 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 how does it actually work? How does cancer actually normal is normally thought of like um oh chris chris if you want to jump in on that so we can take turns yeah yeah so i mean cancer is normally thought of a um a group of cells growing inside someone's body that has specific mutations that make them bad right so like mm -hmm. that let them grow very quickly um that let them get around normal checkpoint um uh, inhibition and you know traditionally you can find a drug that lines up with the things that are bad about the cancer cell uh, to try to kill it or slow its growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the the science of cancer uh, medicine is is really just like matching up drugs to cells, right? Um, but what we're saying is you could actually do something better, which is you know match up the um, path those cells are going to take in time, right? So it's it's this way today. You know, but tomorrow they're going to change and find ways around whatever, you know, medicine you throw at it or, you know, even radiation. Um, the cells have a will to survive, if you will. Um, and uh, so you can give a, a therapy that anticipates that and actually blocks uh, the evolutionary trajectory of the tumor population of cells. Um, it's, you know, it's a, a big problem, right? That's, you know, requires a, a new set of understanding um, brought to the cancer field. But and that's, you know, that's where we fit in, you know, we're, we're evolutionary biologists. So that's how we started thinking about this problem. Right. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had a, a person in my family going through a cancer treatment 
and I was asking lots of questions to oncologists as, as I imagine you guys would think I would do. And, um, the, the person was saying that you kind of start on drug a, which will have the effect of kind of killing your liver at the same time. And then you, you keep going with that either until resistance or your liver starts to fail. Then you move on to something else and something else, something else. Um, but eventually it, it, there will be a resistance that pops up because, you know, like what you guys are saying, um, they're, they're living things or they're little, you know, um, you know, little tumors that are growing inside of us that want to keep growing and, and, and thriving inside of us and, and anything they're exposed to, they slowly get used to it. Um, so I guess un unpacking that more, um, what, in terms of like, what has allowed you to kind of see that, that opportunity? Cause I imagine for, for very many, many, many years, the oncologist had one way of looking at it. Um, I guess that, you know, not making that assumption, how would oncologists look at, um, handling resistance normally? Yeah, so what we've seen is uh, resistance is basically an outcome. Uh, you treat a patient for a period of time until you can detect that the tumor is starting to grow, it's not responding to treatment, and then usually you'll keep them on that therapy uh, for a little bit longer and then just add on therapies afterwards. I think the big problem with how we develop cancer drugs is that uh, we're, we're creating really toxic compounds, right, to kill the cancer. And the effective dose uh, to treat the cancer oftentimes is very close to the toxic dose. And so essentially what ends up happening is um, you're giving these drugs at a very high concentration. Uh, it's very toxic uh, to the patient in general. There are a lot of side effects. Um, and you're really getting only marginal benefit out of these, these oncology drugs um, within that therapeutic window. Obviously, the, there's a lot of really good therapeutics out there that can extend life, you know, a couple of months, a couple of years in the case of some slower growing cancers. Um, but in the context of very aggressive cancers like uh, lung disease, um, like lung cancer or colorectal cancer, uh, you're basically given a few options to slow the cancer. Um, and then as, as the disease progresses, you essentially have to determine the benefit of additional therapy and the side effects that they have versus just letting the patient uh, live the last few months of their life uh, in relative comfort. Um, so in, in the context of uh, developing therapeutics, we have to think about not only uh, shrinking the tumor, but also making sure that the drugs that we develop don't have the toxic side effects that prevent patients from taking the therapy. Okay. That makes sense. Right. And I, guess, I mean, kind of building on uh, what you were describing in terms of the, the treatment path, right? So right now, oncologists do have to switch between drugs to try to, to beat the tumor in this sort of uh, rat race of, okay, which uh, mutations are going to pop up or, or um, transcriptional changes are going to let this tumor get around the first drug, you know, and, and maybe the second drug, you know, won't be um, impacted by these things, right? Um, so they're essentially cycling blindly um, between uh, therapeutic options. In some cases, there's diagnostics that can help them make better predictions, you know, but they can only biopsy the tumor so many times, right? So there's a, a finite amount of visibility that we have to the tumor. Um, and so, you know, we're basically averaging what happens and, and saying, okay, about three months in, you should switch to the second drug. Um, and then we'll watch the tumor growth and see if that seems to be working. And when it stops, maybe we'll go to drug C. Um, you know, but these are three toxic compounds that we have to give really close to their toxic dose, like Nick was saying. You know, so what if you could give 
you know, three drugs at the beginning of treatment um, at lower doses you know, that synergize with each other and actually block some of the um, known escape uh, pathways that, that we know the tumor is eventually going to take to get around these treatment options. Um, so there's a lot of problems with, with, you know, you know, it sounds good, but like first you have to figure out what those escape pathways are, you know, and a lot of times when you're just cycling between drugs, you don't, um, you don't necessarily know as a clinician, which pathway the tumor is following. You just know it's growing again. Right. Mm -hmm. How, how, how do you determine which pathway resistance a tumor will go down? So what we found is that it's very difficult. I mean, like Chris was saying, um, looking at human patient samples is, is often very hard to do, uh, mostly because you can't grow them outside of the, uh, the patient without changing how the tumor is going to respond. So once you pull the tumor out of the patient and you try to culture those cells on plastic or some type of uh, different media to see how those cells respond, um, they're already different than, the, than what they were in the body. And so what we've been focusing on is looking at uh, defined populations of cells, looking for predictable uh, metrics for evolutionary change. So we try to define this stuff all up front uh, in, in uh, the lab. And then we look at patient samples and patient data and clinical reports to see if whether or not what we found in uh, the lab matches up with what's in the clinic. And from there, then we're able to, to determine what the likely trajectories of a tumor are based on the clinical data that is available, as well as the lab data that we generated. And then we build models that we then validate in the clinic. Okay. How, how, how strong of a model do you need to have for an oncologist to trust it? So that's, that's it depends on the oncologist um, and it depends on the cancer type. Um, and so that's kind of what, what drove us towards uh, some of our earlier indications, like, non-small cell lung cancer and colorectal cancer, where they were more willing to try things like this because, you know, disease-free progression is, is fairly short, right? So um, they're willing to be more creative um, and to, to try things because there's a huge need. Um, but I, I do think that oncologists like to see, um, you know, not only laboratory data, but, you know, a clinical trial. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the gold standard that we're working towards. But um, you know, along the way, like they're excited by things like cell line data or, or animal data. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, how, how far have you guys gone it thus far in terms of knowing how strong your models are? Yeah. So this is actually really exciting. I mean, what we've been able to do with our system is pull out uh, resistance markers that have been clinically validated. So they've been seen in actual patients and then they've been validated in the lab. Um, we've been able to do that with uh, FDA-approved drugs um, in about you know two weeks to two months. So where a normal therapeutic would take years to develop uh, uh, resistance in the context of a clinical trial and all the preclinical development and all this stuff, and then you finally get to a clinical trial and you find out that your drug doesn't work, we can determine that all basically upfront uh, with our system because we're selecting for things that are intrinsically there. We're, we're basically asking the cells to behave for this therapeutic the way that they would behave um, when they're treated with them. Mm -hmm. Unlike a traditional therapeutic screen where you're trying to modify specific targets or specific transcripts, uh, we take a much more um, uh, broad approach, a more evolutionarily um, 
consistent approach with what happens in uh, a tumor. So we, we're working with large populations. Uh, we're looking at how uh, systems that are pre-existing arise within uh, the context of a particular treatment um, and how that affects the tumor uh, as it progresses through treatment and what resistance markers that come out of that um, can be predictive of certain different types of susceptibility for different classes of drugs. Hmm. So I don't know how in-depth in you can get into this answer because I imagine this is deep into IP territory, but in like a, a high level, how, how do you build something like that? Like is um like what 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 is the technological foundation to allow it to happen other than just um you know a, a, a lot of data is being fed into something I imagine but like how to um without without getting you guys in trouble in terms of IP I'm just curious like how how does that like abstractly work well I we can start by saying like you know we we wanted to be able to build this you know as much in silico as possible. Um, you know, but then we realized like the data sets aren't really out there, right? So like there's not this, the, the detail um, that you need in published data sets. There, mm -hmm. there are clinical trials that you can use to validate the system that you're making. You know, so we started with that as our benchmark. So can we recapitulate with our system what people actually saw in the clinic? Um, and then, you know, we went, you know, back to, to cell culture um, and found ways to grow a large population of cells um, that is, um, uh, that has many individuals, right? So like, and, and not just like, um, you know, a few different mutations, but like as many clinically relevant mutations, um, as popped up in the clinical trials, right? So that was, that was our benchmark. And we basically didn't stop, uh, increasing, uh, the robustness of the system until we got to where it needed to be. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, I don't know if that gives you a, a picture of what we're sitting there doing in the lab, but it's, is growing a lot of cells, you know, you know, as a population rather than as a monoculture. Um, okay. And we're using creating like a dynamic mosaic essentially. Yeah. Okay. So it's like one part cell culture, one part software that analyzes the cell culture. Okay. Right. Right. So the software is really important for picking which drugs would be good um, and, and kind of, you know, mapping it between what we see in the culture and what we see in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And um, how big is the team? Is it is it just you guys, or are there are there a few other people on the team? No, we've grown since uh, the last time we spoke. Uh, we've got five full time employees working with us now, and we're in the process of expanding beyond that. Mm -hmm. How it um, it's pretty awesome. The how how has COVID affected everything that you guys are working on? Like, do you have to do anything special to to, to continue working, or yeah? Yeah, I mean, obviously we have to social distance and we have uh, staggered lab schedules so that people aren't in when other people are in. And we try to uh, reduce the amount of exposure that any one person has. Everyone's in their own office. Everyone has HIPAA filters in. Hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you have a sniffle, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, stay home. <laughs> And then we have, you know, decontamination procedures and Chris is obviously working from home uh, part of the time and so am I. And so uh, we're doing everything that we can to kind of spread out um, things that we didn't real, really expect to become an issue that became an issue were supply chains. Um, so like plastic uh, cell culture dishes, um, things that are just really essential for research have come into uh, um, short supply, uh, which has been 
frustrating, but obviously we've been able to work through that by getting, you know, surpluses of stuff and stockpiling and doing what we need to do to make sure that we have enough to get through the winter, if you will. Uh, uh, both literal and metaphorical, because it is winter now. The, um, <laughs> is, uh, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, what has prepared you to be successful in this? Like, what about your, your guys' backgrounds and everything that you've built and the, and the team's backgrounds that allows this to be something that you guys can uniquely pull off? So, I mean, I'd say, you know, the first thing is that we have a, you know, a good core team that has a history of, of working together on similar problems, right? So, you know, we, we took a similar approach um, during graduate school, Nick and I, um, where we met, and you should definitely listen to that podcast if you haven't already. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, so tackling this problem was, you know, we didn't have to, to start from scratch, right, in terms of how do you, you know, lay out the framework for, you know, convincing physicians that this is a good idea. You know, we had um, already a, a framework for doing that. Um, and, and I don't know, I mean, I think, you know, we, we had to learn a lot on the, on the technical side in terms of how do you grow cells this way. Um, but on a computational side, a lot um, was similar from our, our first um, first product in antimicrobials um, in terms of modeling how resistance happens in a population of cells um, and how you compare what you're seeing in the dish to what you're seeing in the lab. I mean, it's just you know modifying that to look at eukaryotic cells versus prokaryotic cells. Mm -hmm. um, they they all have you know RNA and DNA, and those things eventually lead to resistance and. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and I think too, just in the context of our background, I mean, we, we started in, uh, you know, we started with bacteria and uh, antimicrobial resistance is a huge problem, right? It's something that, uh, you, that it's estimated that we're gonna spend a hundred trillion dollars over the course of the next 50 years um, in terms of like lost revenue, just because of uh, antibiotic resistance and all of the uh, associated problems associated with a lack of uh, treatment uh, availability. You know, patients with cancer who no longer uh, have a good antibiotic, you know, they, they, they die from the infection and not the cancer. And so what that provides us is a framework for understanding resistance. Since it's so ingrained, it's so prevalent uh, in the context of antibiotics, applying the same principles to cancer, we basically just have to learn a new vocabulary, but the principles are identical. Uh, they're, they're very... They're very similar. They're, they're very easy to see the, um, the congruencies between both prokaryotes and eukaryotes and how they react to a drug that's trying to kill it. Makes sense. The, I think we, we unintentionally we have been dancing around this question. Um, what, how big of an impact will focusing on resistance have to a, a patient's quality of life as they go through a treatment and their actual life if they succeedly, you know, succeed in having um, you know, uh, going to remission depending on the cancer. So, I mean, this should have a, a huge impact on their, their quality of life. Um, I mean, for, for two reasons, one, uh, because the drugs that they're getting will work longer, right? So, um, disease-free progression is, uh, you know, the metric that we're, we're using right now in, in oncology to measure how well a drug is working. Right. Um, and basically disease starts progressing again, once resistance emerges. So, the you know any incremental improvement so far like even three you know three months is uh, is a really big deal in oncology um you know we're talking about things much much longer than that if you can accurately predict 
um, and counter resistance mechanisms. Um, there, there are cases, you know, so eventually like we want to get to the, um, the point where, you know, cancer is curable, right? We're not just talking about disease-free progression. We're talking about, you know, how do you, you know, really uh, trap this tumor so that it's, you know, actually killable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the goal. That's, that's our vision for these therapeutics. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, right, um, treatment resistance is the defining barrier to a curative therapy. If the therapy stops working because of treatment resistance, it's never going to be curable. Mm -hmm. um, and we're focusing specifically on that to extend the life of these drugs, to extend the life of these patients. And by focusing on that fundamental problem, we think that we can solve a lot of the big problems associated with uh, treatment failure in cancer. Makes sense. Is, um, you guys mentioned uh, colon cancer and, and lung cancer. Are there specific drugs within there that you guys are going to target for helping with resistance? Or is it the cancers that you're focused on in terms of resistance and then it can apply to multiple drugs that affect those cancers? So that's, that's a good question. Um, an interesting thing that we're finding is that um, in making our, our drugs, we can use um, drugs that are available on the market for cancer, but we're also finding good uses for drugs that that target important pathways that, that weren't previously thought of as oncology drugs. Um, so for instance, like resistance mechanisms can span, um, you know, anything from just, you know, blocking a drug from sticking to a cell to actively exporting a cell or exporting a drug from a cell. Um, and there's a, you know, a plethora of drugs that made it to various stages of development that we're finding could be useful for uh, countering resistance. Uh, so whether that's like psychiatric, cardiac, um, oncology drugs, um, it's, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, what's out there. Mm -hmm. And we're also finding like brand new targets that have never been associated with cancer before, but are associated with tumor resistance. Makes sense. The, um, so you guys have been at this for a, a number of years now, and you're, you're focusing on cancer, uh, using your expertise to, to do that. What, what's keeping you guys going? Like what, um, you know, uh, I imagine everything hasn't been like margaritas and, and sailing on a, in, in, in a lake somewhere or something like that. So how do you, like, how do you guys keep that fire going? And, um, yeah, just for people out there who are, who are in startups or, you know, <laughs> experiencing 2020, uh, which someone, I read someone, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I got this, uh, this thing. I think it was a meme that my, my, uh, my soon be wife gave me, but, it was like someone was saying like 2020 is like the worst year in a while, but then someone was saying that it might be just the beginning of the worst decade. <laughs> the long time. I was like, why would you put that out there? But, yeah, I'm, just, yeah. but I'm, I'm curious as, uh, as people are going through 2020, as other people are starting startups or live in the startups or working in biotechnology. Uh, I don't, I, there are many startups, you know, fail within the first six months to a year. Many, most businesses fail within the five, first five years and it's very stressful and it, there's a lot going on there. So I'm, I'm really just curious, like what, what, what have you guys found that is really effective in keeping that fire going as you guys hit and are hit, you know, I mentioned, you know, daily with, with things they need to, to, um, you know, make changes around or, or fix or whatever. Well, I have bags under my eyes, so that should tell you how. <laughs> You're um, more handsome. That's it. <laughs> Being no, handsome helps. I, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very stressful, right? Like you're, you're in the process of building a company in the process of employing people who rely on you to build the company in the right, in the right way. Um, but I mean, for me, the thing that 
that really, the reason why I do this um, is because the woman that got me interested in science, uh, she was the first person that gave me a chance to hold a pipette, um, to be in a lab, to do the things that that kickstarted my passion for science. Cause like you, you don't get a PhD. Um, you don't get a PhD for like fun of it. It's really difficult and hard and stressful and, you know, mentally numbing. Um, and it, so this woman, she, she got me into science um, and she was diagnosed with cancer um, and went into remission a few times, but basically, you know, is this waiting game of when is the drugs going to fail? Um, what new molecule can they put out so that, uh, you know, they could potentially treat the cancer? What new thing can, she, what new clinical trial can she get on? Um, and basically what would happen is she would get on a new molecule and it would work great for the first couple of months and then it would fail. And then she'd have to be put on something else and put on something else. And um, it's, it's sad because you know, she was a scientist. She, she's a PhD. She's brilliant. Got me interested in this. And, you know, the other day I couldn't talk to her because she, um, she lost the ability to speak. Um, and it's for, it's for her and it's for the people like her, the 600,000 people every year that die of cancer, um, that we do this. Or at least that's why I do this. Cause it's, it's solvable and it's solvable in a way that we can address. And so we should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I would say, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress associated, you know, with doing science or, you know, or running a, like both of those things alone, it's <laughs> a lot of stress. Um, but, you know, I think that there's, you know, with stress comes reward, right? Like there's um, a lot of freedom, right. To be able to, you know, explore the natural world and what possibilities are out there, right? Like, what we're looking for are weaknesses in, you know, something that scares a lot of people. Right. So like, you know, it's, it's the dragon that everybody wants you to slay. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's sitting out there, you know, so like it's a way to kind of channel your stress in a way, right. Like whether it's, you know, with the antimicrobials or cancer, like if you can wake up with the the thought of like, you know, squishing something that nobody likes, there's something cathartic about that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah. Um, I mean, I think if I wasn't doing this, maybe I'd be in like, you know, pest control or something. <laughs> um, it's a good fallback career, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully you guys can just be the pet, uh, pest control for cancer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what, um, so the, the Nick, you, you touch on this idea that they're not coming for me, I swear. <laughs> 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 you touched. Uh, there's always cops around here. I don't know what it is. We live in a very safe location, but um, the uh, so you touched on this idea that like you know you're kind of racing against time when there's cancer involved. The the stuff's growing; it doesn't stop. Um, that's life for you. Like you know, as Jurassic Park likes to say, that they'll find a way, and that's kind of what you guys are trying to figure out. It's like how how do they find a way? Um, yeah. Is it like a Jurassic Park where? In the beginning, they foreshadowed the fact that you can just loop two, you know, uh, connector end uh, belts together to suggest that they'll be able to use the frog DNA to mate female to female and do stuff like that later. But uh, um, when you have that, when you have that like race to the end, if there, if it's knowable how it's going to be resistant, you can, and we can have specificity in terms of the drug itself and how it affects that 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 tumor cell. 
it sounds like we'll be able to not only have more targeted therapies, but more targeted therapies that can hit and hit hard and keep going, you know, until like, you know, until it, it, it's done, which, which now it's, um, it's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of, uh, we're trying to get more specific with a, a lot of these things, but like you guys are saying, as soon as you take it out, it, it changes a lot. So, you know, those people are doing their part to make it specific. You guys are doing your part so that when they find that specificity, it can hit really, really hard and not have to be changed, you know, a month later. And then, you know, a month later and all, all those things I imagine, um, would have a cumulative effect on, on a human, on, on someone's body to have to try out those different chemicals all the time, which would then, I imagine, not just help with the quality of life, but the, um, uh, as, as someone who went through the hospital myself, like the idea that you have to try out a bunch of drugs, like I hate drugs now. <laughs> like, I really do. Like, uh, there was a time where I, I, like, I couldn't take Tylenol cause I was like, Oh, what if I have a reaction? Like, <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> it sucks. Um, so like the, knowing that like I can have like one thing at work, if I was in this case would, would take a lot of the stress off, uh, that I imagine a lot of people are facing. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I as I empathize and think from your guys' point of view, that would be a, a huge fire that would, that 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 keep keep me going and make it really easy to find great people. Because you know, um, you, know, you ask someone, you know, why do you want to work on this? And if they're like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> why do I get up in the morning? Uh, these are good questions. Um, you know, like uh, it is. I guess like the real answer is like it's hard not to be passionate about you know improving people's lives to to this level and touching them on such a fundamental. They, like most, most people are going to have a family member that, that, or someone that they love that has gone through a, a cancer treatment or suffered from it. Just the, the nature of how long we're living nowadays. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so I think you hit on two, two things that were really important. One is um, giving multiple drugs at once. Uh, and the other is like specificity of the drugs to make sure that the, the treatments are really effective. So like in the context of a tumor, um, it's often thought of as like this uh, homogenous monolith, right? It's got one set of drivers, the cells are all the same. Um, but like we were saying, it, it's really like this dynamic mosaic. And so you have a whole bunch of drivers all at once. And if you could hit all, you know, eight drivers all at once, um, then you might be able to get a curative therapy. And in, in like pediatric cases where like a child could, could legitimately handle taking you know, five, six, seven, eight drugs all at once uh, and bounce back. I mean, they have seen curative therapies in some types of lymphomas and uh, leukemias. But you can't give that many drugs to an adult. Um, we basically just our biology has changed to the point where uh, the toxicity becomes more compounding, right? And so you can't handle more than even two or three drugs at any given time. And so because the tumor is this, this dynamic mosaic, and because you can only use a few drugs at once, the necessity to hit something very specifically is really high, right? Because if you're very targeted to a mutant protein in a cancer cell, then you don't have to worry about the toxicities that are associated with a wild type cell, the cells that are normally in your body doing their job the way that they're supposed to. The problem with getting very, very specific is that it makes it easier for the cell to get around it. Because now all you have to do is a single point mutation. So a single change from an A to a G or a T to a C or whatever within the context of the genome to change the target just slightly. You know, you, you just need to have a single small change. And now the drug doesn't work. 
or you need to be able to, to shift the metabolism of the cancer cell from you know, fatty acid synthesis to like glucose synthesis or pick your favorite metabolite. And it, it makes it easier for the cell to kind of get around it. Hmm. And so on one hand, we want specificity for cancer cells to reduce toxicity. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that the drugs that we're, we're using um, aren't easier aren't easier to get around, that resistance isn't easier to create because of how specific the drug is. And so one of the things that Chris and I focus on too is these things called non-canonical interactions. So a canonical interaction means that you know, like this is this is the primary interaction, you know, A goes to B almost always. And that's, that's the canonical interaction. The non-canonical interaction is that sometimes it can also go to C and D and E. And so we rely on the ability of that drug to go to C and D and E because those, those targets are similar enough that the drug sticks. And it might, might stick in a weird way. It might stick in a different you know, binding pocket that changes the metabolism, but it essentially allows us to create networks of inhibition so that we're not just inhibiting a single target. We're inhibiting networks of, of targets interact with each other so that it's harder for the cell to become resistant to the network versus the single drug or the single target. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that kind of leads back to why it's important to get it right in the lab first, because it's, it's really tough to interrogate that, you know, in a person, right. It's, you know, the car is running, you know, versus in the lab, you can stop, you know, the engine at each point and look at you know, how does this network behave when I perturb it with this drug? Yeah, okay, now what if I you know, add these two drugs together and then, you know, okay, now I add eight and I kill the thing, but like, what's the minimum I could add at the, the most tolerable doses? Um, so because when combination therapy happens all the time in cancer, right? Like that's a really common approach. Um, the problem is, is that we don't know what happens over the long haul. We know that if you give an EGFR inhibitor and an ALK inhibitor or whatever uh, drugs in combination to hit the, the drivers of your particular tumor type, um, you'll be able to treat it initially, but over time, you've actually created a more aggressive, harder to treat tumor. Hmm. What, um, I was just thinking about it, sorry. The, well, we talk about time. How long does it take you to figure it out? Like when, when you, you know, have the, if you have the lab perfected, right. Let's say I have cancer, I'm going to knock on wood because, uh, I don't know my body hates me enough as it is. It, it, it probably like, Oh, you want something else? But, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, if I had cancer and, um, my college was like, Oh, I, I know of these great people at BioSera, Chris and, and Nick, they're, they're working on this, you know, this thing, like how, how long would it take from me walking into the college's office for your technology to come into place and then develop a therapy with the oncologist to um, affect change in my life. If I were to, if I were to have that, assuming it already works and stuff like, like what would be the time element for in terms of like actual development? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're, we're creating therapeutics, right. And we're helping um, companies create better therapeutics. And so what we've done is we've created a brand new class of drug called adaptive resistance therapies that adapt to the tumor over time. And so like any other therapeutic, uh, you need to take it through clinical trials. And so that's going to be you know, anywhere between six and eight, 10 years to get it to the clinic. Um, but there are ways that we can help companies right now where there is a known drug that works at some level uh, or doesn't work at some level, and we can help figure out why 
and then incorporate that into what we're calling an art, the adaptive resistance therapeutics, um, so that we can create a better therapy that targets not just the initial, the initial efficacy point, what happens to the tumor over time. So you always have the right drug at the right time uh, within the context of the tumor. Mm-hmm. Are there, um, so we, we've talked about like what you guys are building, why you're building it. Um, and we're talking a little bit of like, you know, five to 10 years to develop your therapeutic and, um, but you can help businesses now. What, if people were, if people were, you know, subscribed to your newsletter or, you know, watching your website, it's pretty bare right now. I think you guys are up to something, but um, like, what would the, what would 2020 look like? 2021, uh, it's almost over, but like, what would that look like? What would, what would um, people see to know that you guys are, are, are doing well or to keep an eye out? Um, yeah. Like what, 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 what would people expect for like the next year with what you guys are working on in terms of just like the immediacy of other companies and other things that you can be doing to affect people's lives? So I think the first thing uh, they can expect is our, um, you know, our findings compared to clinical trials, right? So like the first thing is convincing other companies that are, you know, that have drugs um, that our system works, right? So, you know, we've generated um, all this data, you know, showing what, you know, took them, you know, three or more years, you know, in a phase three clinical trial um, to show, you know, in about, you know, a month or less, right? Like we can see that in the lab. So convincing people to, to use our system so that they can start making better therapeutics is the first thing um, in 21. So you should expect to see a lot of, uh, of data from us in terms of uh, white papers and uh, publications. Um, the second thing, you know, if everything goes according to plan is partnerships, uh, you know, to develop drugs like this um, so that they can go as fast as possible um, to clinic. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess to, to jump back a second, you, uh, Nick, you mentioned that um, you guys developed your own class of therapies and it's called art. Yep. Yeah. Did you guys develop it or was that like a, like, like literally even in terms of naming it? Yep. Why did you name it art? There's already art therapy. You guys are going to get, you know, bled out in the SEO on the internet. Like, <laughs> I don't know. We, we, we tried Ritz resistance, resistant therapies. We tried, darts uh, dynamic it, there's just no way to to uh, incorporate what it is because i mean if you think mm-hmm. about it you know targeted therapy falls underneath what an art is um you know cell-based therapies all, basically any any molecule or therapeutic that you can create we can incorporate mm-hmm. um and so it's, it's it's brand new it's a brand new class it targets specifically the adaptive response of uh of tumors and it programs that in uh upfront, right? So we're not giving one drug and then another drug and then another drug and then another drug. We're giving a, a unified dosage form to a patient um, so that we can uh, anticipate and drive the tumor to a point where it's going to be susceptible to one drug within that con- within that uh, therapy. Makes sense. The, um, I was mainly just joking. Like, right. art, art is a great name i'm a little self-conscious about it because it, it took us so long to just come up with the first one and then no one liked mm-hmm. it we had to keep coming up with new names and <laughs> what was the first one that people didn't like the dart uh no resistance resistant therapy um it, it was too uh it wait, was it was it sounded a little pretentious and then they're like wait two r's and a t like that's not ritz you know yeah uh, it, it also um I, I won't say it because it was just that someone called it a mind expletive. Uh, it was too much for them to think about. So <laughs> the resistance resistance, like, does that mean that it's 
good for the patient. <laughs> yeah. Like two negatives make a positive. That's basic math. This shouldn't be that hard to, to think about. Um, no, I, I think, I think it's great. Um, and then, you know, you can, you know, have nice stuff on your, your website explaining it. The, is there, are there things like, you know, there are people who can be listening into this. Um, some of them are going to be just regular people. Some of them probably going to be investor type people. Some of them are going to just be really smart STEM people who really get excited about this type of stuff. What could people do to help you guys out? Like what, you know, if there's, you know, they could keep an eye for types of paper research. I mean, really anything. Like if, if, if you could have, if you could mobilize a bunch of people listening in to help you guys out in any particular way or any series of particular ways, like what could people do to help you out? Because I think everyone would agree that anything we can do to punch cancers in the face is something that, like Chris said, is, is really nice. Uh, gets people out of bed. So, Yeah, so uh, what, one of the things that we're looking for is uh, collaborations with uh, scientists that have access to clinical samples. So working with clinicians to get real patient uh, data so that we can test our, our, our hypotheses uh, in actual patients uh, without having it affect their, their overall treatment. Um, I think that's one of the big things that would be nice to be able to do. Uh, we have a few collaborations that we're starting with, but um, it'd be good to expand the network as we expand outside of colorectal cancer and lung. Um, I think another thing that we'd like people to do is start to think about treatment resistance, not in the context of just a uh, antimicrobial resistance, um, but in the context of many disease states. So how treatment resistance in the course of chronic or acute conditions can affect patient care. And then I think the last thing is, at least for me, Chris, you might have a few more things you want to ask, <laughs> um, is that there's this understanding that combination therapy as it currently stands is not, is not effective uh, in, in many cases. Um, and so when we think about how we're trying to drive the tumor, while we're working with multiple uh, kind of levers, essentially, uh, to drive the tumor to a point of susceptibility, uh, we're doing it in a very defined way that is fundamentally different from just prescribing drugs that go after the specific driver of a tumor. We're not looking at, you know, what's here now. We're not looking at that, uh, that snapshot. We're trying to build a movie that we can essentially use to create a therapeutic that addresses the, uh, the multiple snapshots throughout time. Yeah. What would be a good example of a, of a, like a partnership that you look out for? Like if, you, if there was like an ideal set of characteristics? Yeah, so anything, so any, any, any company that has a drug um, phase two or later uh, where they have some efficacy data, they have some um, toxicity data, uh, but it's not as good as they were expecting. We can help them. We can help fix it, especially if it's in targeted therapies or chemotherapies uh, in lung cancer, colorectal cancer. Right now, that's what we're focusing on. Um, and so, uh, you know, phase two asset uh, that has good safety data, but uh, the efficacy data needs help. Uh, we can help with that. Assets that are even earlier, right, where you know people are are trying to optimize efficacy. You know, we can we can help before things become a problem too, right? So, you know, phase two faster to clinic, yes, but 
I think long term we want to be you know baked into how people think about drugs and discovery. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like upfront, when you have a lead, what is the resistance profile of that lead molecule, and is it better or worse than another compound in your uh, collection? Because um, if you can address that upfront, you can either stratify patients or you can um, create uh, therapeutics that bake in um, the known resistance out for that particular molecule so that you're coming to clinic with a, a, an art essentially versus a single therapy that we know is going to eventually fail. You make oncology an art. Exactly. Um, <laughs> okay. The, is there, is there an avenue that you guys think you're going to win over? Cause there's usually like a go-to market or like there's usually a spot that people typically win over and then wins over the rest. Is, do you get? Do you guys have an expectation on who's going to be most excited and be your early adopters for what you're building, Chris? Um, yeah. So, so there are a few few companies that we're talking to now that are pretty excited about this. Um, you know, they're um, you know they're, they're pharmaceutical companies that have gotten to a point in development um, you know, where they're realizing they sh- probably should have thought about resistance earlier, right? So, you know, it's, it's not too late, right? It's never too late to, you know, make your drug better. But um, yeah, it's exciting to see that, you know, people who've developed a single molecule are, um, you know, very invested in, you know, thinking about ways to make it better, right? As opposed to just the traditional model of like, let's just get it to market as fast as possible, um, you know, and then wait for resistance whenever it happens, right? Like. People, people are, are thinking forward. Um, it's, um, I know like, um, I'm not an expert in this space, but they you know, like shipping containers get insured if they, you know, if they can make it from point A to point B. Uh, I don't know if they, I imagine they don't, but like if, if drugs could be insured, that'd probably be a, the insurance companies for that would probably love you guys. Cause then they wouldn't have to pay out the premiums or like pay, pay out when, uh, with all the failures that go on. But I, I imagine like no one wants to insure those things. Like people are more likely to insure rockets than, uh, you know, therapies because of their rate of success. But um, if, if those existed, that'd be a great place to, to partner with because they'd be like, oh, sweet, don't have to pay it out. They, they found a way. Um, but I was thinking the, for a lot of people, this idea of resistance resistance is really difficult to think about. Um, have you guys ever thought about having like an email campaign or something or like a, a segment that would like explain it to the layman that people could subscribe and they could like opt into, you know, kind of like a journey to appreciate it? within like an action item at the end for them to like do something with it. So like other people can learn. Yeah. We've been thinking about ways that we can kind of describe this uh, process and, and, and the, the, con- the concept in general. I mean, I think the thing that uh, we often forget is that it took us, I mean, it, it took us years, if not decades to figure like to figure this out and understand it and have the base knowledge and vocabulary to just get a handle on this. I mean, we even have advisors who are, you know, uh, professors at top universities, and this is something that is that they're that they're just starting to grasp. Mm-hmm. So, the concept itself is is, is difficult, it, but it also means that it's new and it's uh, it's innovative and it's something that hasn't been done before. So, yes, we want to help educate people on this particular biology because it's so new, and it has such a benefit to. Yeah, the whole field really. I mean, and we've thought about weird ways of educating people. Mm-hmm. Like um, yeah. there's, there's an app, right? That's uh, an evolution app where you 
you currently what you can do is uh, build bones and muscles and you try to make this creature walk, right? And then the program evolves. And if you stay on the, the website long enough, like eventually you have like some sort of walking creature. So like, you know, I think uh, if, if Nick lets me on our new version of the website, there will be a, a game where you as, you know, a tumor can try to survive um, treatment. And, uh, you know, there's uh, various changes you can make in terms of your, uh, your cellular composition and, and, you know, what, what friends you have in the community um, that affect your odds of survival. But, um, you know, I think, you know, I think it kind of has to go back to, to something like that, where like, you have to experience what it's, what's going on, like, on a concrete scientific level, you know, to, to then extrapolate to, well, this is why tumors just suddenly become resistant, right? Mm -hmm. But you can make like a disease resistance Oregon trail, essentially. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It would be really yeah. easy to win though, because that's like, like, cause if we're, if we're betting on the cancer, right. You know, if you're playing as the cancer, it would be really easy to win. Yeah. Well, it's like the, well, you're, you're, you're like, there's like a, a troop of people and they might get cancer and you're like the, the oncologist with the persistence, resistance, art, art, uh, uh, therapy helping people and there can be like paint colors with them so you can kind of have fun with it um but yeah i don't know i worked at i worked at a place where they tried building a game into the website and it took so much so much time it was like it was the it was equal in length to the whole website being built so i would, I would caution if like time is the element but um so like and ending on I'm, I'm a big reader i'm always curious like what people are doing especially as they they go through their lives to kind of like like give themselves fuel do you uh, chris i just learned you like records um but are, is there is there something you you guys listen to and like I'll, I'll i'll go first maybe this will probably give you an example like i'll have the lord of the rings the shire like ambiance music playing when, <laughs> when i'm like researching or studying something and it's like the problem is it's like so relaxing it's so, like i have to like change it every now and again but if i'm like really just trying to like think on something it's really nice background music um, and it like perks me out because I really love Lord of the Rings and in a way that's probably like mildly unhealthy. But uh, is there is there anything that you guys do like that, like a like a ritual to some extent, or like something they have it on the background that you think like boosts you to to keep going? It could be music, it could be a YouTube video, it could, it could be like going for a walk. I don't know. Um, just kind of curious. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Prince recently. Um, I feel like that's the that's the level of energy I need. Uh, that and a lot of caffeine. Um, mm -hmm you know, so someday I'll get back to, you know, where, you know, uh, something more like Lord of the Rings is, is enough, uh, to <laughs> boost me, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit too calm to begin with. I need to be fired up. So Prince <laughs> is perfect for that. Makes sense. The, did, oh, did, are you aware that like Prince has like a, a, a vault of content that's going to be released over like a hundred years? I was not, that is exciting. Yeah, so they, like, if there's like, uh, I was watching this interview with Kevin Kevin Smith, where he's doing this documentary for Prince, and apparently, um, like, he just has like a like he saw what happened with Michael Jackson, where he just was forgotten so quickly. Even though like we're talking about him right now, I don't think you can forget Michael Jackson. Um, he basically made a ton of content, and like the his it, like his people will put it out every now and again. So like, you know, when you have like grandkids or something like that, or or like you know it's Nick's birthday twenty years from now, you can give him like some prints, or like Nick could get you some prints. Um, uh, you should probably fact check me on that, but I was watching this interview where the guy, he was telling me about it, um, telling the audience, but, uh, Nick, what about you? Yeah, I've been, uh, listening to Lord and Wave Shaper. Um, Wave Shaper is like this eighties retro funky 
jam kind of stuff. It's, it's all uh, electronic, like instrumental stuff. Um, mm. It just reminds me of like uh, Ready Player One and oh. Rush and whatnot, uh, which is what I grew up on. Just like Rush and yeah, mostly Rush. <laughs> uh, it's too too many lyrics, so I, I have to go to like just like the instrumental stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I thought you were gonna say the King because Chris was the Prince, <laughs> 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 but it was you know in a similar vein uh, in terms of time. The um, there's a there's this movie where like people road tripped across the country and they listen to Rush all the time. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look it up. I think you might like it. Um, it's about like Star Wars or something. Um, so I guess the the I always like to end like on two things. Like one is like, you know, where can people go to, to learn more? And, you know, it's biosera.com. I'm pretty, pretty, pretty sure. Unless you guys are changing that too. Um, but uh, other, other than the website, is there other places that people can, that should go, they, they should go and to learn more? Yeah. So we've got some really excellent collaborators uh, that are working on this from a basic science side and also from a clinical side of things. Um, we're working with a guy named Jake Scott uh, out of the Cleveland Clinic. His uh, collaborators, uh, Nate Pennell and Mike Catan. Um, we're also working with uh, Alana Fertig out of uh, uh, out of Johns Hopkins and Christina Curtis out of um, Stanford and Michalina Yanosuska out of uh, Scripps in in, my, in uh, Florida. And so, if you're interested in the, the basic science and understanding. You know, how people are thinking about this, not only from a biological standpoint, but from a clinical standpoint, as well as from a mathematical modeling standpoint. Um, they've got some really great papers that are, you know, like the foundation of, of, of our ideas and what we're, what we're using to move forward. Would it, would it be possible for you guys to create like an RSS feed of all those into one so people can just subscribe to that and then get updates for everyone that you're partnering with at the same time? Yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> I don't know. It's like I, I, it's like you know, remove all those clicks and just get in one place would be awesome. All right. So the last question I always like to ask people, um, I don't know if I asked you guys when I, we first interviewed because it's like it's one I found somewhere in there, but I always like to uh, uh, like we basically been talking about like answers, right? Like what 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 are the questions of the, of the world that you guys are, are you know answering and, and trying to solve, and that's you know uh, re- resistance, resistance, <laughs> and um, but I'm curious, like what what is something? It doesn't have to be big. It can be small. Um, I used to, and I'll give my answer what I used to be and I actually figured out what it is, which is pretty nice. But um, what is something that you don't have the answer to that kind of bugs you that you think about every now and again? And so uh, my mind used to be um, what was here bef- before here. So like when, when time existed and the Big Bang happened, like what was here before the Big Bang? Like I like went back then and like put my finger in the dam of the Big Bang and it, I didn't let it explode. <laughs> what would be here that used to be my question but i'm just curious it doesn't have to be that big It'd be like why do hot dogs come in you know a pack of six and but buns come in a pack of seven i don't know but like uh what is what is a question you guys have and maybe a listener can you know help you know answer it but uh yeah Any, anything that that is a quandary that you guys think about chris I'll let you go first where's that prince fault <laughs> yeah, where, what's and what's a combination? Um, uh, no, I think you know. To me, one of the one of the questions is um, you know, kind of future facing. You know, like you know, what happens when we actually solve all of these problems, right? So, like, you know, what happens? Like right now, we we have to struggle to stay alive. You know, in a, in a certain sense, but like, you know, eventually we're going to get re like really good at medicine. Um, and it's, it's not going to be a question of like quality of life or, or you know, it's just going to be, 
you, you know, what problems are, are we going to, are we going to put our minds to then? Right. Like um, to me, it feels very much like we're still on level 1.0, right. Just like, you know, figure out how to like make your body not attack itself or, you know, not grow tumors or not be susceptible to like tiny microbes. Like, but what, what's next, right? Like there's a whole universe out there and there's a, a, a lot, you know, <laughs> so, so what, what are, what will we do next? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think my, my question is more inward facing. Um, it's, am I doing the right thing right now for the best benefit? You know, what, what is, what should I be doing right now to make the most of what I have? Um, I think has really, really been the, the biggest one because, you know, you, you yeah, I, you still want to live with those doubts mm -hmm. and so figuring out what you can change so that when you're 90 or hundred or however old we end up living, you know, you, when you look back, did you live it to your full potential? Mm -hmm. so. uh, there's some really interesting research on seeing the outcomes of your work. So if you can meet people that are being affected by what you guys are working with, it would probably really help clarify that or like, you know, give you that clarity. Um, would be my suggestion of, of finding the answer, but I, that's like a, one of those long, long uh, life things. Um, but all right. It's in the context of, uh, should I have this other donut or should I have a carrot? Um, <laughs> something a little bit healthier. <laughs> But also, also uh, the larger existential. Am I doing what's right? The answer is always a donut, Nick. It'll uh, solve your existential problems and your uh, your problems. I don't know if it solves my waistline problems though. Mm. I'd probably I'd probably vote on a carrot. Sugar kind of freaks me out. Like I don't know. I'm weird though. And that was uh, our episode today with Nick and Chris. You got to go over you know resistance resistance therapies and how it can be affected in you know cancer patients and how it can go about really affecting change in a lot of people's lives. So check out their website. It'll be in the show note. Go to Learn With Lowell, subscribe, do all those things. I'm basically available everywhere. And let me know what you want to be seeing. Do you want more stuff like with Chris and and, and Nick? Or do you want um, a variety of things? You're going to see a variety. And I'm also thinking about doing uh, multiple episodes a week, uh, kind of like Joe Rogan, because I have such a variety of interests and there's a lot of people who like to be on the podcast. So why not do that? So let me know what you think. And thanks for coming out today.